If you're new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here at our church. A warm welcome to you. We trust you feel welcomed at home. If you do have any questions about anything related in relation to our church and getting connected, please come say hi. Don't be a stranger. Well, we are continuing on in our series on Luke's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles there with you, open them up to Luke chapter 20, verse 41. And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. You know, it's easy to think in life what we need is small things like money or food, housing. But actually what we need most is to hear from God. So let's listen to this word of God this morning and allow it to speak to us. And I'm going to ask God for help. But he, that's the Lord Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pre- and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you this morning that you love us so much that you would speak to us, that you would give us the beautiful gift of your precious words more that you would give us the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we gather this morning together and celebrate Jesus, we pray, change us this morning in and through your words. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this week in Christianity Explored, we've been looking at the concept of mistaken identity and asking the following question. Have you ever had an embarrassing incident where you got someone's identity horribly wrong. Now, in the course, I was quiet because I actually have a big list of instances where I have embarrassingly got someone's identity horribly wrong. It actually started for me from a very young age. I was about four years of age. Our family was out on a fishing trip, and there was a man sitting at the uh, pier fishing with a big, beautiful beard, just like my dad. So I walked out to him, gave him a big cuddle, and said, Daddy! And he turned around, and of course, it wasn't my dad, and his mates thought it was absolutely hilarious. I still remember it so clearly being at the shops and waving frantically to a friend, except it's not your friend. Uh, A favorite from a few years ago at church retreat, can't believe I'm telling you this, Um, I was standing next to Charlotte, at least I thought it was Charlotte, and uh, I reached down to hold her hand, 
And the voice comes back saying, what are you doing? And it's like, I'm trying to hold your hand. What are you doing? It was, in fact, Charlotte's uh, twin sister, Celine. <laughs> Embarrassing. You see, it's one thing to get people's identity wrong at the shops or in life, but it's a far, far more serious thing to get the identity of Jesus wrong. Nothing puts a person in a more precarious situation than messing the identity of Christ. And in our passage today, Jesus, having been attacked by the religious leaders of his day, is offering them one final puzzle that they just can't answer, and it's about his identity, the identity of the Messiah. And as he leaves these religious leaders angered and confused but unable to answer him, he will turn to his disciples to warn them of one of the vital consequences of missing his true identity. Taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Matchless King. I have two points for us this morning that simply uh, follow the text. Point number one, greater than the greatest. And point number two, the foolishness of pretending. But one hope for us this morning, and that is that we would offer our hearts to the matchless king of all. This passage, I believe, is an encouragement from Christ to us to give him not just our behaviors, but our hearts, our very hearts, to him, the matchless king of all. So let's dive right into point number one this morning, greater than the greatest. Now, by way of context, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, if you're new to it this morning, our passage today is set in Jerusalem in the week leading up to Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus, having cleared out the temple in chapter 19, set off a series of confrontations with the religious leaders. First, it's the scribes, the uh, religious legal, legal experts and the chief priests. They question him over his authority. What gives you the right to do this? They then try to trick him with the contentious issue of the tribute tax paid to Caesar Tiberius at the time. Finally, the Sadducees, who are the wealthy liberal elite, try and trap him with a question about the resurrection. And despite their best attempts, every time they encounter wisdom from the ages. And people are in absolute awe of Jesus and his replies, so much so that we read of the religious elite in verse 39, it says the following of our passage, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. You know, Jesus is so intimidating every attempt and every person who attempts to trick him that they no longer dare to ask him any more questions. But Jesus is not yet done with these religious leaders. They may have been confounded by his answers and lacking courage to ask anything further, but Jesus has one last puzzle for them. And the crowds are all around and watching carefully as Jesus asks a vitally important question. Read with me again verse 41. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? But David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? You know, what Jesus says here is a little confusing to us because of the culture that we live in, which is so different to the culture of Jesus' day. Jesus' culture, and in fact, most cultures today in the world, are hierarchical. Elders and older people are people to be revered. The wise, they're considered to be wise and to be treated with greater honor and respect. You know, in our culture, we tend to look down on elders. We, we tend to think of them as backward and out of touch, intolerant and probably racist. And in fact, I would say it's one of the great tragedies of our culture. You see, for hundreds of years, God's people had been waiting for a great king. A great king chosen by God, a Messiah or Christ who would come and rescue his people. This king was to be a descendant of David in the line of the greatest king Israel had ever seen. You see, despite his great sin, David was unparalleled as a king over God's people. He was unparalleled in his skill as a warrior, filled with the Holy Spirit. He was unparalleled in his love and devotion to God with his many, many great victories and the hundreds of songs that he penned. And God had promised David in 2 Samuel that his descendant was to bring in an eternal kingdom of God. And for the next thousand years, God's people would wait. Many kings would come and go, some good, most bad. A couple coming close, but none exceeding David in his greatness. But the expectation was that this king to come would be greater than the greatest of kings. He would be greater than David. And so the question Jesus is asking is this. How can the Messiah, how can the Christ, how can the promised king be the greatest king if he is just a descendant from David? Jesus is saying if the Messiah is just David's son, doesn't that make him his inferior? And to make this point, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. It was written by King David. And it describes the coronation of this great new king, the Messiah who will rule over the nations. And Psalm 110 verse 1, which is quoted, reads like this. It says, The Lord, or Yahweh, the personal name of God, Yahweh says to my Lord, or you could say my master, Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David describes a vision of Yahweh speaking to someone he calls my master. To David's master, God says, sit beside me on my throne until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, we think of footstool, we think of feet up watching Netflix on the couch or something like that. But this was the picture, an image common in the ancient world of a victorious king with an enemy king at their feet and that king standing with his foot on that king's neck. It's a, a picture of victory. It's a picture of strength. It's a picture of a powerful ruler. 
It's a picture of God's incredibly close relationship to this coming king. He shares the glory of his throne with him. And he determines to crush every single one of this king's opponents. And Jesus makes his point crystal clear in the next verse. He says the following in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord or Master. So how is he his son? Jesus is saying, if the Messiah is only to be the descendant of David, how could he possibly be greater than him? How could he be David's master? Jesus' point to these religious leaders is simple. The Messiah must be far more than a mere descendant of David. He must be the divine son of man. You see, nowhere in the Bible is any man said to sit enthroned next to God. It's almost blasphemous to even suggest it. Except for one mysterious figure in the Old Testament book of Daniel, described as one like a son of man, who gives authority, or God gives authority over every nation, and every nation in turn serves him, this man. The son of man would turn out to be Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus would go on to say the following in his trial, confirming that the divine son of man is him and the the one who would uh, David would call the master is in fact himself. In Luke 22 verse 69, Jesus says the following in his trial in front of all the religious leaders, he says this, but from now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In describing this verse, John Calvin says the following, He says, Mark and Luke express more clearly the reason why Christ put this question here. It was because there prevailed among the scribes an erroneous opinion that the promised redeemer would be one of David's sons and successors who would bring along with him nothing more than elevated human nature. Now as the hour of his death was already approaching, the Lord himself intended to attest to his divinity that all the godly might boldly rely on him. You see, how could a descendant of the greatest king be so great as to warrant being called my master by his ancestor? And the answer is, because his nature is that of no mere man. He is the God-man. He is the divine son of God himself. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, just as we hear at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You know, for many modern secular people today, Jesus was an example of humanity at its best. One of the greatest and most influential figures in the history of the world. An excellent example of an outstanding moral teacher with great teachings like love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek. But this simply is to give Jesus nothing more than elevated human nature. You see, if Jesus is nothing more than the greatest man who ever lived, we can have no assurance whatsoever that he will rescue us from death. His death would be a great tragedy or perhaps Example of nonviolence, but nothing else. He must be man to be our representative and God to be able to bear the weight of our sin. 
One or the other will not do. He must be both. And the message of the Bible is that we have a weight of debt before God that we can never repay. You know, imagine with me a single mother uh, raising an only child who she deeply loves. She slaves away at two jobs, working day and night to provide for him. She pays his way through school and then through university as well. He graduates. He gets an excellent job. He moves out of home. And he never speaks to her again. I think all of us would say, this is an example of great injustice. The son has wronged his mother and failed to treat her the way she deserves. And yet this pales in compassion, in, in, in comparison to the way in which we've treated God. We owe God far more than any child owes his mother. He is our maker and sustainer. We have willfully turned our backs on him and been cut off from him as a result. We were worthy of great punishment for we rejected God himself. And yet the beauty of our passage is that the Lord Jesus delivers to these religious leaders yet another stunning question they cannot answer. And as he does it, his vision is firmly fixed upon his great mission to go to the cross, to suffer and die to win his people back. You see, the Lord Jesus had come to rescue us from our terrible plight by paying our debt. He had come as a man to live as our representative. And he had come as God to take the full weight of our wrongs upon himself, upon the cross. See, God is perfect in his justice and he will not forgive wrongs that have not been paid for in full. And so as Jesus hangs upon the cross, he was willingly taking our wrongs upon himself. Why? So that God can be just and say, you are forgiven. See, Jesus is the greatest of the great because he is the divine king. He cannot be compared to any who have come before him and no one is equal to him. And that, my friends, is point number one, greater than the greatest. But not just point number one, point number two, the foolishness of pretending. Uh, recently, this week, uh, Charlotte and I were watching a movie from 2018 called The Favourite. And we thought it was going to be uh, just a, you know, 17th, it's kind of like Downton Abbey or something like that. It's actually really raunchy. We couldn't finish it. So this is not a recommendation at, at, at all to watch it. But it's set in 18th century England, uh, which at the time is at war with France. And there's a disgraced lady called Abigail Hill, uh, played by Emma Stone, who attempts to regain position in society through her cousin, Lady Marlborough, who is a friend and aide to Queen Anne of Great Britain. And she ends up manipulating absolutely everyone to get the Queen's favour, poisoning and twisting them to serve her own selfish ends. Meanwhile, Queen Anne is oblivious to it all. See, the truth is, even the greatest of human kings can be tricked. They can be deceived. You can put on a show and manipulate them. 
But not so with this divine king. You see, in life, it is possible to deceive people. I mean, even those closest to us, to be simply playing a part. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of this. Maybe you've experienced someone manipulating you or deceiving you. Maybe you've even been the deceiver, concealing things from other people. And yet time and time again, Jesus shows that he has insight into the deepest recesses of people's minds and hearts. Luke chapter 5, 22, it says, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, Why do you question in your hearts? John chapter 2, verse 24, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in a man. You see, we all intuitively understand why people feel drawn to hiding. It's something we all feel tempted to do, to paint a picture of ourselves that is better than reality. Just take one look at social media. It's really social marketing or self-marketing, isn't it? But when you understand properly who Jesus is, you realize that hiding is foolish. More than that, it's not even possible. When God the Son looks at you, there is no hiding. He can see into the deepest, most hidden recesses of your heart, and he knows you. See, it's easy to think that this next section of our passage is primarily addressed to people like me, religious leaders. And in a way, it is addressed to me. Um, There's something about reading this that puts a shiver down my spine and makes me feel like getting on my hands and knees and saying, Lord forbid that I would ever be like this. But church leaders are not the primary audience that Jesus has in mind. Read carefully verse 45. Jesus says, says the following. Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to who? He said to his disciples, beware. The warning in this passage is not primarily for religious leaders. It's for all of us. It's for disciples. Followers of Christ. Who needs to listen carefully lest they're affected by this example? His disciples. This warning about the example of these religious leaders is intended not primarily for the religious leaders themselves, but his disciples. This is a warning for all of us about the absolute foolishness of pretending before God. We're going to take some time now to run through the list of criticisms that Jesus makes of them as a warning to us. Firstly, Jesus says they love to show off their wealth and importance. Verse 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. You know, different from the colorful clothes that working class people would wear. This is a reference to the full-length prayer shawls with tassels at the end that scribes would wear. You can't do hard labor in those, not at all. They were made of wool or fine linen, and they were a symbol of wealth and importance. They wanted people to know that they weren't just like everyone else. They are elite scholars, respected and honored with significant means. Secondly, Jesus says they loved to be publicly praised. Again, verse 46, he goes on and says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes 
and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. You see, in Jesus' day, when a scribe arrived, all people except laborers who should continue working were to stand in reverence on their arrival. And Jesus says they love this attention. These best seats in the synagogue referred to benches against walls, especially the bench at the front that faced the congregation. This marks someone as set apart and overseeing the congregation. And they loved being singled out like this. Sitting at banquets was often arranged in a U-shaped sort of arrangement with the host at the center and the most important guests closest to him. And they loved this kind of honor and praise. But not just that they loved being publicly praised. Thirdly, Jesus says, and they took advantage of others. Verse 47, he says, Beware the scribes who devour widows' houses. See, scribes were not necessarily wealthy like the Sadducees. They were dependent on the gifts and generosity of others to survive. And so rather than caring for the most needy, like widows, some scribes clearly abused the high esteem they were held in and the generosity of others. They took advantage of others. But not just that they took advantage of others, also, finally, Jesus says, and all their displays of godliness were for show. Verse 47 He goes on, beware the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. That word pretense simply means for show. They did it for show. This is not a criticism of long prayers by Jesus. He frequently prayed all night. It's a criticism of prayers that are not genuinely out of a love and trust of of God, but simply for show, to look impressive to people around them. And this is what hypocrisy means in the Bible. It's a word for acting in the theaters, wearing a mask, pretending to play a part. It's not genuine, it's fake, just like Abigail Hill in The Favorite. The strong warning from Christ is that those who practice this kind of fake religion that seeks to impress others but lacks a genuine heart for God and others, these people are in danger. See, the Bible does not teach equal punishment for all when Christ returns in judgment. For those who refuse Christ, punishment awaits. But those who refuse Christ while pretending to be godly and even attempting to lead God's people, according to Jesus face a condemnation greater still. Well, here's the pertinent and difficult question I want us to consider this morning as we consider Jesus' warning to us. Is there a mismatch between your public display of godliness and your private practice? See, Jesus wants us to hear this warning as an expression of his love for us. We are prone to all of these temptations, are we not? We're tempted to show off our wealth and importance. I don't think 
Many of us, not that I can see looking out on you this morning, attempted to wear long prayer shawls with tassels, not that I've seen uh, today. But we have our own temptations, don't we? For our kids to be enrolled in that school, to buy that car, to wear those clothes, to own that house, not because we need them, but because of how it makes us look to others. Like God is blessing us and all is well, or to gain the approval of that colleague, or that spouse, or that parent, or that neighbor or friend. And how different this is from the way of Christ that says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than, than clothing? Not just that, we're tempted to seek public praise, are we not? We might not exactly have people standing in reverence for us, but we all have this deep desire to be praised for the things we do. You might not even be conscious of the fact that this is such a significant driver for why you serve at church or home or workplace in the way you do until suddenly praise is given and it doesn't include you. And you're furious that you've been overlooked. But this is so different from the way of Christ that says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But not just that, we're also tempted to take advantage of others, are we not? You know, we might not exactly be going into widows' houses and taking their money and resources, eating them out of house and home. But it's so easy for us to be happy, to attend church and enjoy its fruits while single mums and widows, as there are in this church, give generously and serve sacrificially to make it happen for us. And what's the unsaid expectation in all of this? That others will do these things for me. But this is so different from the way of Christ that says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, we're also tempted to put on a show of godliness before others, are we not? There might be some of us here that are tempted to make uh, long-winded prayers just to seem impressive before others, but I don't think that's the temptation most of us face. You know, here in the North Shore, our temptation is more to give the appearance of everything is fine with us, while beneath the surface, we are deeply troubled. Maybe... You've grown up in the church. And if you're honest, you don't genuinely have love in your heart for the Lord Jesus. But you go through the motions every week and no one is aware. Maybe you're simply going through a hard season. Health, relationships, career, kids. And you're discouraged. And no one knows. Maybe you've neglected your faith because of significant challenges with marriage or the kids or health or studies or at school and you've stopped praying and you've stopped reading and yet you keep it concealed and when asked, everything's great. Maybe you're just seriously questioning life and faith. You're not sure what to believe and when you're here, the walls go up 
the mask comes on and you smile like everything is fine. Is there a mismatch between your public display of godliness and your private practice? If that's you here this morning, there is wonderful news for you. You don't need to live that way anymore. We have great resources in Christ to stop pretending. Firstly, God already knows. He already knows you're pretending. You can't trick him. See, the scribes failed to realize that God could see completely through their plans to pretend to love him in front of others. More, they failed to see that God the Son was right there in front of them, describing their hearts with perfect clarity. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the greatest of the great. And he is enthroned on high and he sees our hearts. God already knows, but more than that, Christ has paid the penalty for our failures and so we no longer need to hide. Ever since Adam and Eve first sinned, we've been hiding from God and others. And this is exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. They, they thought the only way they could have value and significance was to conceal their faults and to seek praise from others. But the beauty of the cross shows that all of our sins and failings have been paid for in full by Christ. What possible sin could we have committed that has not been paid for in full by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because God, through Jesus, not only sees all of our sins, but has paid for them in full, we don't need to conceal them anymore. God has already given his verdict. The Lord Jesus has paid for those sins in full upon his cross. See, the cross enables us to take the mask off. You can admit to being broken, to being fake, to struggling with your faith, to lacking empathy for others, to using them. You can admit it all because you've been forgiven in and through our Lord Jesus. You know, as we round up our time together uh, this morning, I just want to pause upon two possible applications of this passage for us this morning. You know, if you're here this morning and you have a wrestle that you've been keeping secret from others, there's a simple application for you. Share it with someone. You know, I'll let you in on a secret. No one has it all together here. First, bring it to Christ in prayer. He's, he's not interested in you having it all together. He already knows you don't. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Like a father with his son. Talk to him. Share it with someone in our community, like your gospel community leader, or a trusted friend, or even one of us pastors. And experience the support and encouragement of the body of Christ helping you live for him. No one is going to reject you for sharing if they're following Christ. All they will want is to help you to follow Jesus. Secondly, for the rest of us, this passage is a reminder to keep careful watch. We must pay careful attention to any evidence that we're starting to be fake that we're starting to hide, that we're starting to pretend in our walk with God. 
See, the greatest of the greats, the matchless king of all, wants our hearts. He's not interested in fake. You can't fake it with him, and we don't need to. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are embraced by God. And so we ought watch carefully for any instinct, any desire, any attempt to conceal a wrestle from God or from others. Ask even today, God, for an awareness of any signs that, that you are trying to fake it with him. Instead, would we offer him our whole hearts with genuine love and praise. As we close, uh, this movie I mentioned earlier, The Favourite, it actually ends in quite a disturbing fashion with Abigail Hill continuing her manipulation of Queen Anne. There's a final scene in which she's in Queen's, the Queen's bedroom and has her foot on the neck of the Queen's most prized possession one of her 17 bunny rabbits that she has, symbolic of the 17 children Queen Anne actually lost through the course of her life. And Abigail begins to apply pressure with her shoe to its neck. And the bunny squeals. And the Queen, unaware, calls her over to massage her legs, which are painful. See, the Queen doesn't know that she's been taken advantage of, choked by this ambitious woman. The truth is that many people go through life thinking they can also manipulate this king. Maybe not so maliciously like Abigail Hill, but just live a good life and go to church and do and say the right thing and care for the environment, be a nice accepting person, give to charity, all the while having a heart that's far from him. But this is no ordinary king. This is the greatest of the greats. The divine son of God who sees all. And he's also the king of matchless grace. He's a father who loves his son by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't want false acts of love. He wants our hearts. So much so that this matchless king Jesus joyfully went to suffer and die for us. So, in conclusion, friends, would we offer our hearts to the matchless King of all. I pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you this morning for your matchless grace to us in and through the Lord Jesus. We can never understand the depth of your love that would drive you to come into this world and suffer in agony upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you didn't just stay in the grave, but you rose victorious, ascended on high, and you are present this morning with us in and through your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, come and help us, Lord God. For anyone here this morning who's been hanging on in secret to hidden sins and struggles, we pray, help us to take the mask off and and open up to walk in, in integrity, to believe the cross's power to set us free. Help us as a community to welcome all with the embrace of Jesus, encouraging one another to follow him. And would our lives ever increasingly and our hearts ever be only all for you, our King. Praise in Jesus' name.